So a couple months ago, I was reading through, I, I read the Jesus Storybook Bible with my kids. How many of you parents have read the Jesus Storybook Bible? Put your hand up nice and high. It's amazing. So all of you, even if you're not parents of little kids, I would encourage you to get the Jesus Storybook Bible and read it to yourself. It, it, it's this incredible story of, it, it, it summarizes the Bible, but it talks about how every story in the Bible points to Jesus. Every story whispers his name as the tagline. And it's been incredible for my own soul to read it to my kids and to see how the whole Bible fits together and how Jesus is the, the point of the scriptures. A couple months ago, I was reading one of the stories in the New Testament where Jesus is doing these incredible miracles. Like we've seen in the book of Matthew, as we study Matthew over and over again, we're seeing Jesus do these mind-blowing miracles, raising people from the dead, healing sick people, multiplying food when the crowds need to eat. And so I'm reading one of these stories, and my son Judah, my five-year-old son Judah said, I mean, we're watching superhero movies, right? The Incredibles, The Incredibles 2, all these different superhero movies. And so I'm reading this story, and he said, Dad, Jesus is kind of like a superhero. I'm like, yeah, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, superheroes have power, and, and Jesus has power. He, he can raise people from the dead. He can, he can touch people and pray for them and heal them, and he can make a bunch of food when there was only a little bit of food. Jesus is like a superhero. Then he said, Dad, do you, do you think I can do things like Jesus did? Because we always talk about how we are called to imitate Jesus and to live our life like Jesus. And so I'm sitting in his bedroom on the floor reading this Jesus storybook Bible, and here my son is asking me, a pastor, if he can do things like Jesus did. Miraculous things, amazing things, superhero type of things, right? And he's five, and so I'm discipling him and helping him to try and figure all of this out. And I remember pausing and thinking, how do I answer that? I know how to answer it biblically. Biblically, the answer is yes. We sang it this morning. The same power lives in us. Mighty Savior, lifted high, King forever, Jesus Christ, crowned in glory, raised to life. The same power lives in us. Biblically, I can answer that question. Yes, son, you can do similar things. You can do miraculous things. You can do amazing things like Jesus did because his spirit lives in you. But then practically, I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I can say yes. For one, I don't want to give him the wrong assumption that if he lays his hand on a sick person and prays for them, that they will be healed. And then yesterday afternoon, he and I are out in my driveway and my neighbor Bill comes over and he tells me about his wife Jane who had fallen down the stairs and this weekend and broke her back, her neck, and her skull. And he says, I know you're a pastor at a church. Could you, could you pray for me? Could you pray for Jane and Judah's there. And I'm like, we've been having these conversations and, you know, and internally I'm like, yes, I'll, I'll pray for you, Bill, and for your wife, Jane. And then I feel the Holy Spirit saying, pray for him now. And I'm like, yep, I'll, I'll pray for you later, right? You know how that works. And just the Spirit was nagging me, no, pray for him now, pray for him now. And so we held hands and, and uh, Judah kind of stood there. He wasn't quite ready to like lay his hand on Bill and pray for him, but we prayed for Bill and for his wife, Jane. And I'm, and I'm thinking through, does, does, does Judah know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work here and now in this prayer? And do I know that? I believe that, but do I experience that? And so my question for us this morning is, do we have the same power in us that raised Jesus from the dead, or do we have some power? Have we become content with just, well, God will do some 
powerful things through me, but it's different than it was for Jesus. And so biblically, here's the answer. Romans 8, 11. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The same power, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If you are a believer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that same Spirit dwells in you. That's what Romans is teaching us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4 through four says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Incredible. We've, we've been granted all things that pertain, to life, that pertain to life and godliness and we have become partakers in the divine nature nature. And then Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 says, in him, that's Jesus, in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. He's, he's human. He was flesh and yet humanity and divine met. The fullness of deity dwells bodily and you, if you're a Christ follower, you have been filled in him, in Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. So my question for us this morning is that as we see this is true biblically, that we have the same power living in us that raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus lived his life by, is true for us biblically. Is it true for us practically? Do you experience the presence, the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do you live as though you have the same power or have you grown content with having some power, with having a lit, little bit of power? And we get a glimpse in Matthew chapter 12 today of what a spirit-filled life looks like. So what I want to do is continue on with Matthew here, and I want to look at Jesus and see how he lived by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit and then talk about what that means for us. So if you could stand as we read our text for today, it's Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 37. It's on page 817 in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, now what he was aware of, you have to go back to verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Remember last week he, he had healed people on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they want to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him. They want to remove him because he's pushing back against their religious traditions. Jesus, aware of this, aware that the Pharisees were conspiring against him, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed them. 
so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Which is a title for the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be judged. But if it is the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give People will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God, we thank you for this word. Jesus, we thank you for coming to earth, embracing this fallen existence, and living among it perfectly. Living the life that we are incapable of living, dying the death that we deserved in overcoming sin and death in the grave. We thank you for teaching We thank you for calling Matthew, the tax collector, to listen to your teachings and to record your teachings that we could hear from you this morning. So I ask that as we look at this passage, Lord, that that the words that are spoken wouldn't be my words, but I pray that you would speak to us through me, that you would open up our ears, open up our hearts to receive what you have for us and to make your word living and active in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before we dig into this particular text, Matthew chapter 12, there's two lenses that we need to look at it with. The first one is we are not Jesus, right? We all affirm that together. That's pretty basic and obvious, but we need to keep that in mind. We are not Jesus. This passage is, it's giving us this, it's fulfilling prophecy. Look at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 12. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus, aware of what the Pharisees were doing, conspiring to kill him, as it tells us in verse 14, and then he removes himself in verse 15, and he goes on and he heals all and tells people not to let it be known who he is yet. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And at this moment, he was walking among us. He was the the Messiah prophesied of in the Old Testament. He was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. That's uniquely for Jesus. So this morning, we're looking at some parallels between a spirit-filled life that Jesus had and a spirit-filled life that we ought to have. But I think it's important for us to, to remember that we are not Jesus. There is a distinct difference between any created being and Jesus, the Son of God. 
He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah. He was the Messiah among us. He specifically had the ability to heal all anytime that he wished because he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. This is a way that that the identity of the Messiah is being known to the people. And so we just need to keep that in mind. That Jesus had, had, though we have the same spirit in us that Jesus had upon him and in him, Jesus had a unique calling and a unique ministry to help the masses know that he was the Messiah. But secondly, the second lens is that we are commissioned by Jesus to live like him with the same spirit and power that he lived by. And I don't understand these tensions here, right? With Jesus is different than us. He had this ability to heal people. He had this this specific messianic identity that he was revealing to people. And so every time he prayed, every time he asked for healing, anything that he called upon God for, it was done. And that's different than our experience, and it's different than I even think what we can do. I mean, Jesus models for us to pray God's kingdom, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not our will. And so a human, a broken human mind trying to judge what's my will versus what's God's will is really tricky and hard to do. And so we're not Jesus, yet we are commissioned by him to live like him with the same spirit and power that he lived by and that he was raised from the dead by. So there's some tension here which we will never resolve in our lifetime. But how amazing, how amazing that the scriptures teach us that Jesus himself, as we walk through Matthew and see him doing these incredible miracles, that Jesus himself commissions his followers with that same spirit. Is that your experience of the Christian life? And here, Jesus is commissioning us. In Matthew chapter 28, we're going to end with that today. He commissions us to live in him, by him, for him, through him, with his same spirit. He says, I will be with you always. And so, verse, 20, verse 18 of chapter 12 says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved whom my soul is well pleased, this is a, a quote from Isaiah chapter 42. It's affirming Jesus is the Son of God, the chosen Son of God. And then at the end of the verse, it says, I will put my spirit upon him. So that's what I want to look into this morning. This text tells us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was put upon Jesus. And it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus lived his life and did his ministry. It wasn't by his divine nature, like 100% God, 100% man. Jesus didn't do miraculous things by his 100% of divinity. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it through becoming a servant. And so I want to look at six marks of a spirit-filled life this morning that we see in Jesus, and then we will see how we share in these marks. Six marks of a spirit-filled life, and specifically in this text, There's more marks throughout Scripture. I mean, if we were to do a whole case study of marks of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, there would be a ton of more marks than just six. But we see six in this text. And the first one is servanthood. Starting in verse 18, before we're reminded that the Spirit of God is upon him, there's this mark of a Holy Spirit life that is servanthood. Isaiah prophesies, and and now Matthew recounts this prophecy 
Behold my servant. A spirit-filled life is marked by servanthood. The Greek word here used for servant is very interesting in that it, it, there's a couple different words used for servant in the New Testament, and some mean like a bond slave, like you are, you are bonded to a master. This is more of a child in training. And so, so Matthew actually picks this up and he says, Jesus is like a child. The God-man who has eternally existed in glory has become like a child. As Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says, he humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. So we see a mark of the Spirit-filled life is that of, of servanthood. Oftentimes we think about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. We think about conquering and overcoming and, and these powerful experiences. But one of the marks, one of the key markers that we see here in this text of, of a Spirit-filled life is that of servanthood, that of, of learning. So this Greek word here, servant, means a child who learns. Think about this. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, continued to learn. As Hebrews tells us, he learned through suffering. He learned obedience through suffering. Can you imagine the eternal God having to learn through suffering? The one who created all things, the one who made all things, the one who is glorious above all things, humbles himself and learns to be obedient to God the Father through his own suffering. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we increasingly are marked by servanthood. This, this childlike faith that is learning from the Father, learning from a master. Throughout the book of Matthew, we've talked a lot about apprenticeship. Matthew is concerned with us apprenticing Jesus, us walking behind Jesus, learning from Jesus. And here we're seeing that Jesus as a servant, as a child who is learning, basically is apprenticing himself to God the Father and he's filled with the Spirit and he's learning from God the Father how to be holy. He is holy, he's set apart, he's holy other, he's different, but, but he's becoming what he is. Jesus is learning. It's like when I was studying to be an electrician. There's a reason why I'm not an electrician. Part of it is the call of God, the other part of it is because I'm a terrible electrician. Don't ask me to do any electrical work at your house. I went to tech school to be an electrician and then transferred to a different college to get a Bible degree. And so my baseball coach was like, hey, you just graduated electrical school. Come and do my basement. And like a young, proud 20-year-old, I was like, I can wire your basement, no problem. So I went over there with my little tool kit, started putting things together. And before you knew it, sparks happened and smoke happened. And I had to call my older brother, who's a real electrician, and call him in to mop up my mess. And when I was studying to be an electrician, I would work with my brother in the summers as an apprentice. And as an apprentice, I didn't tell my brother how to do the job. I listened to him. He would say, hey, I need you to run out to the truck and grab me this tool. I need you to run out to the truck and grab me this light fixture. I need you to watch me do this so that I can go to another room and do something else over there. And so I'm going to put this one outlet in, and then I want you to do all the outlets in this room. I, I, I was his servant. I was like his apprentice, his child, somebody that he was teaching. And this is the culture of the New Testament. Many times, kids would adopt their parents' trades. They would apprentice their parents. They would apprentice their uncle. They would apprentice someone and learn that trade. And here we're being taught in Matthew that Jesus, as he's filled with the Spirit, he's learning 
He's apprenticing. He's growing. To be spirit-filled is to live a life of submission to the Father, doing what He says and asking what He wants. Think about that. To, to live a spirit-filled life, it doesn't mean we just run out. We've been given authority, give, been given the same power, but it doesn't mean that we run out and take advantage of that authority or take advantage of that power. It means we constantly live a life of submission to God. Say, God, God how do you want me to use the power that you've given me? What, what, what do you want me to do? Where should I go? Who should I talk to? How should I pray? What should I pray for? God, would you make it clear? You're my master. I'm, I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you. Second mark of a spirit-filled life here is sonship. Verse 18, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So Jesus has eternally existed as the Son of God. But we now, in him, are adopted as sons or daughters of the living God. Jesus, a mark of his spirit-filled life, was that of, of sonship. Now, he's eternally existed. He's the son of God from eternity past, but he was born to earth as a man, and, and God the Father from heaven, if you remember when Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A mark of a spirit-filled life is somebody who is beginning to understand and is growing in their identity as a son or a daughter of God. If you want to know if you're being more and more filled with the Spirit of God, ask yourself how you think God sees you. If you think God is perpetually mad and angry with you, if God is perpetually disappointed with you, that's not the Holy Spirit's revealing who you are. As we grow in God, in the Holy Spirit, a mark of a Spirit-filled life is that we begin to understand who we are in God's eyes. That's an adopted child. That's a son. That's a daughter. That's somebody who God, the Heavenly Father, actually looks down upon and says, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased because Jesus' righteousness is given to us. To really understand this, we need to go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it's on page 944. Flip there with me. Romans chapter 8 shows us this adoption as sons or daughters. Starting in verse 11, which I've already read this morning, we'll continue through verse 16. Romans 8, verse 11, it says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, same Spirit. Talked about that. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Not some spirit, the same spirit. Verse 12, let's continue on. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. See that a spirit, a mark of a spirit-filled life is somebody who's understanding more and more they're standing with God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or daughters of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children 
of God. A mark of a spirit-filled life is an ever-increasing understanding of your relationship to God the Father. That your Father is pleased with you. That you can cry, Abba, Father. That, that, that you can get rid of the shame. That He has taken care of the shame. That the guilt is paid for in full. And God, your Father, looks at you and He says, With you, I am well pleased. Amen, church? Most of us don't think that way. As I counsel Christians and talk with Christians, most of us live with this little sense of, of shame. We're guilty of sin and we know that we're guilty of sin and our guilt turns into shame and we think that God the Father is, is shamed at us, that he's, that he's filled with disappointment in us. But because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and he's given us the same spirit that raised him to life, the same spirit which by, by through this spirit God has said, with my son I am well pleased, that same spirit is ours. And so church, don't listen to the lie of the enemy, the lie of the devil that says you'll never measure up, you're not good enough, you, you, you're dirty. That's true without Christ, but in the blood of Christ we are adopted. We have the spirit of sonship where God says, you are mine. You are bought with a price. So as we consider the spirit-filled life, a mark of that is an ever-increasing understanding of who we are. The next one here is proclamation. Third mark of a spirit-filled life is proclamation. And At the end of verse 18, he says, I will put my spirit upon him. So now, We are understanding that Jesus is living by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that we live by. I will put my Spirit upon him, and a function of God's Spirit being upon Jesus is that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So a mark of a Spirit-filled life is a person who proclaims justice or who proclaims what is right and good and true to the nations. Jesus did this verbally through his teaching. He also did it through his works. Jesus proclaimed justice in both word and deed. He taught the truth. He taught justice to the Gentiles. Gentiles here, we can think about uh, those who are far from God, essentially. Jesus came as a Jew. He came to reveal himself as the Messiah to the Jews, but he's inviting Gentiles into this new life in Christ. He's inviting Gentiles into the family of God. And so when we see Gentiles here, we can just equate that to those who are far from God, those who are irreligious, those who have turned their backs on God, those who know nothing about God. Saying a a, a mark of a spirit-filled life is a person who lives to proclaim justice to those who are far from God both verbally to proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus is the king, he's the Messiah, he's worthy of your worship and praise, inviting people to come and follow him, but also through good deeds, caring for people's physical, tangible, relational needs. A mark of a spirit-filled life is those who proclaim justice to those who are far from God. The next mark of a spirit-filled life is humility. As this passage continues on, verse 19, he says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And his name, and in his name, then Gentiles will hope. We see this incredible ministry of humility in Jesus. As we're filled more and more with the Holy Spirit, as we observe the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, 
and we consider what it looks like for us to live with this same power, the Holy Spirit produces humility. This is countercultural to the world. The world thinks that to rule, to have power, if you have the same power that God has, that God is, that Jesus had through God, through the Holy Spirit, if you have that same power, you would look like you could conquer anything, right? But here, the Spirit is upon Jesus, and then verse 19 and 20 tells us that he's humble with that power. He will not quarrel or cry aloud in the street. When there's opposition, he doesn't raise his voice, puff his chest, and combat it. I was watching a TED Talks on body language not too long ago, and it was like if you're going into a meeting or a presentation and you need to get the upper hand, you're supposed to go into the mirror and you're supposed to do this, right? Like feel the power, like make yourself big, get ready, you're going to go in, you're going to conquer that interview or whatever that may be, you're going to make that sale pitch, like you, you want to have the upper hand, you want to walk into that meeting. How many of you have had a job interview recently? A couple? A few people? You want to go into that job interview confidently, right? And so this TED Talk is like, you need to look in the mirror and get yourself ready, get yourself pumped up. And that's how the world teaches us to be powerful, right? You got to maneuver, you got to manipulate, you got to find the upper hand somehow. But here when Jesus is met with opposition, his pump up isn't this. I've got all power. Bring it at me, devil. Bring it at me, world. Bring it at me, Gentiles. Bring it at me, those who are far from God, because I've got the power. You're going down. Here's his posture. It's weak. It's humble. It's submitted to God the Father. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. When the world comes at us, when the world contradicts God's law and God's rule, when, when it seems like our religious freedoms, which are so good, are threatened, how do we respond? A, a spirit-filled life doesn't respond with accusation. It doesn't respond with threat. It doesn't respond with power and with top-down authority. It doesn't respond with top-down enforcing. Rather, it responds with bottom-up invitation. He will not quarrel or cry aloud in in the street, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Isn't that amazing? It's so countercultural. How will this movement grow? How will people know who the Messiah is if no one's going to enforce his reign, his rule, his church, his goodness, his culture. Well, it's from the bottom up. A bruised reed he will not break. And some people interpret this as being about Jesus, that he was a bruised reed, he was a smoldering wick, but he, he couldn't be put out. And some people interpret it as being about others, people that he worked with, that if others were bruised and about to be broken or if others were smoldering and about to be quenched, he wouldn't put them out. Like the weak and vulnerable of society, he wouldn't just move. There was an obstacle in Jesus' way. He didn't just remove the obstacle. He ministered to the obstacle. I think we can interpret it both ways. He cared for the broken, for the hurting. The, the power of the Holy Spirit didn't cause him to move as kind of this top-down authoritative leader. It was this bottom-up servant. So when people were hurting and broken around him, he didn't remove them because they were in the way. They were slowing down his kingdom and his conquering. He ministered to them. He also himself was a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. He was ostracized. He was ridiculed. He was cast aside, yet he continued. He remained. He conquered through the power of the Spirit. 
not by overcoming the Romans and the Jews who crucified him, but by laying down his life and being crucified. And says, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Again, those far from God. They're having the word of God proclaimed to them, demonstrated to them, and they're beginning to place their hope in Jesus Christ. Now the last two kind of move us into the next part of the passage here. And so this next passage has to do with casting out demons and the response of the Pharisees and the, the followers of Jesus. And really what I, what I want us to see here is that a mark of a spirit-filled life comes with signs of charity that produce unity and force clarity. And so what we see here in verses 22 through 32, Jesus casts a demon out of this man, and the religious leaders are saying he's casting demons out by the power of Satan. And the disciples are here trying to learn from Jesus and, and figure out what this means. And, and I think throughout the entire book of Matthew and in the book of Acts, we see incredible signs of charity, miraculous things being done by Jesus and his people for the good of others. I say they're signs of charity because Jesus is doing, he's doing Oftentimes we call them signed gifts, right? Those of you who have been around kind of church circles for a while, you've heard of signed gifts and then like the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit, kind of character gifts, character transformation. So signed gifts are like healing, speaking in tongues, prophesying, casting out demons, things like that. We see this all over the book of Matthew. And Jesus is doing this specifically out of charity, out of good, out of wanting people to experience God's best in their life here and now, to be set free of sickness and sin and disease and destruction, and specifically in this passage, demonic oppression. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and a mark of his spirit-filled life is that he's doing signs of charity. The Holy Spirit is empowering him to pray for healing, and healing happens to cast out demons so that people could be set free. I think it's important to notice in the scriptures that when Jesus is doing this, it's bringing unity for God's family, but it brings disunity and confusion to those who are outside of the family. So as we consider what a spirit-filled life looks like, if, if there's sign gifts, like verse 15 tells us that Many followed him and he healed them all. And then verses 22 through 32, it, it's this demonic this healing of a demonically possessed man. Those who are following Jesus, those who are in his family, those, those who are considering him king, there's this growing sense of unity around Jesus and around these gifts, around these miraculous healings. But those who are on the outside, they get increasingly confused and angry at Jesus. And so if you've ever wondered, like, can I trust a healing or a miraculous experience? Or some, some of this gets weird, right? How many of you have been in a setting where people are being prayed for, or people are being slain in the spirit or falling over, or those of you who are new to the church, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. As you walk with churches longer, you'll experience some weird things. And you wrestle with and you question what is of God and what is not of God. That's what's happening here in this text. The, the Pharisees are saying, well, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan. And we're seeing this increasing unity among Jesus' followers, but disunity among his non-followers. And this forces clarity. What do you actually believe about 
the work of the Holy Spirit? Does God do the miraculous? Well, a thing to look for is, is there unity in the church around it? Among the body of Christ, is there a growing sense of unity around the miraculous? And is it, for, it forces clarity about who Jesus is. The Bite Nwanle, a pastor who actually was on the video today, he said, supernatural healings demand supernatural explanations. So when we see something supernatural, it forces us to answer it supernaturally. That's what's happening here in this text. Was it a demon? Did Jesus cast out this demon by the power of Satan or by the power of God? And what does Jesus say? He responds by saying, why would I cast out a demon by the power of Satan? A house cannot be divided and still stand. So Jesus here is affirming, I am the Son of God. I work for God. I'm doing miracles in the name of God for the advancement of God's kingdom. And so when we see sign gifts, we, we have to ask, is there a growing sense of unity? Was it done in charity? And then it forces us to look for clarity. Look for clarity. One of the big questions in here, verse 31 and 32, that people wonder about, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. This is amazing. He's saying, whoever speaks against me, Jesus, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. It's forcing clarity. Now, people will often wonder, have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Did, did I see a miracle happen and I assumed it wasn't God or, or I, I judged it as demonic activity? If you're asking those questions, you likely haven't committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay? God is forgiving. God is gracious. There's people who have rejected Christ and rejected the gospel and rejected the work of Jesus only to repent and turn to him and be saved. So what this passage is doing, it's forcing us to clarity, to really think through, what, what do I believe about Jesus in a spirit-filled life and what does that look like and, and, and is there a growing sense of unity around me or is it just for the benefit of one person and is it causing division? And then lastly, the sixth mark of a spirit-filled life is sanctification of character that produces good fruit. Jesus closes down this teaching here by saying, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. So there's sign gifts as a mark of the Holy Spirit, but then sanctification. Sanctification is a theological term that means becoming more like Jesus. When you first heard about Jesus, your, your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, your character may have been this far from him. But the more that you've apprenticed Jesus, the more you're becoming like him. The quicker you are to forgive, the quicker you are to not gossip, the quicker you are to, to give it all away to those who are in need, you're becoming more like Jesus. And so there's two key marks of a spirit-filled life. It's sign gifts. It's this miraculous, amazing thing that God is doing in and through his people for his people. It's creating unity and it's forcing clarity. And then there's this consistent growth in becoming like Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's an amazing picture of this. A person growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Jesus here is telling us that a life filled by the Spirit is going to produce good fruit. 
for a tree is known by its fruit. We see good fruit coming out of Jesus' life. He's filled with the Spirit. So as we consider what it means to be filled with the Spirit, is there good fruit being produced from our lives? And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, this passage tells us. So, so what are your words? Are they honoring to God? Are they fruitful? Are they producing fruit? For by your words, verse 37, you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Basically, Jesus here is saying that, that based off of the fruit of your life, it's proving where your allegiance is. It's proving if you've surrendered your life to God and if you've received his spirit and if you're growing in his spirit. So where are you at this morning, church, personally? As you look at this list of six marks of a spirit-filled life, is your life increasingly marked by the same spirit that produced this in Jesus? Is it marked by some spirit? Like, yeah, I'm growing a little bit, but I don't really believe that God can do incredible and miraculous things in and through me. Or is it marked by no spirit? Some of you may have not surrendered your life to Jesus and you don't actually have the Holy Spirit in you as a guarantee of the deposit made for you in Jesus Christ. Is your life marked by some spirit, by the same spirit, or by no spirit? And regardless of where you're at this morning, there's an invitation for all of us at the end of Matthew. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus this morning, you've been baptized or immersed into the life of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, you can do that here now. Just say, God, I, I want to follow your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe that he's Lord. I believe that I'm in need of him and I'll figure out all my questions later. If that's you, you've been immersed into the life of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we want to invite you to come now and commune with him. Communion. Enjoy sweet fellowship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's two stations here in the front, one in the back as we respond. Would you receive the invitation to come and receive more of him? To come and be with him. Would you yield yourself to the presence of God, the person of Jesus, and the power of the Spirit? Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, that you lived the perfect life that we're incapable of living that you died a sacrificial death in our place on our behalf, and that you have commissioned us to live our lives in the same power, with the same spirit that you lived your life by and that you were raised from the dead by. I don't know what that looks like for us to engage with that this morning, Lord, but I pray that you would meet us where we're at and that we would experience more and more of you. I pray that we would commune now with you for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel. Amen.